Good evening. It's December 30th, 2016, and this is KAPR, Korean American Political Report. My conversation is with Maryland Delegate David Moon, and he uh, goes over his history as well as what he is fighting for in Annapolis and for the state of Maryland. Many thanks to Delegate David Moon for recording this very important conversation, and apologies for the significant delay. Please enjoy. I'm trying to really get at the narrative of of Delegate Moon and uh, his younger years. What made an impression upon you, as, especially to become a public servant as a delegate? And so I, I wanted to kind of bring that more of that out, and then we'll get to your legislative accomplishments and your future goals uh, towards the back end of uh, of this discussion. So the the first question is, uh, how was it like growing up in? With, Korean immigrant parents? You know, I, I probably didn't realize this until uh, later in life, but in many ways, in hindsight, I think my experience growing up with Korean immigrant parents was probably very similar to a lot of other uh, children of Korean immigrants. And in some ways, I think it was different in a way that might have made things more relatable to um, any typical American family upbringing. And I think that tension was probably at the heart of a lot of, you know, who I am and, and how my identity came out of that. Um, and so when I say that it was a, a typical experience, when the Tiger Mom book came out, <laughs> Uh, you know, really sort of portraying the stereotype of the uh, stern Asian parents who really wanted to, uh, you know, push their kids, you know, on very rigid academic and other cultural success measures. You know, I was like, wow, I can totally relate to this um, in a negative way. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's sort of like scarring flashbacks to you know, different aspects of my childhood. On the other hand, it was a little atypical in the sense that um, I think gender matters a lot here, too. Sure. And so I was, uh, you know, born to Korean immigrant parents. I was their son. I was the middle child, but I also had two sisters. Um, and that right there, I think, was sort of a, a window into, into certain gender norms. Um, for example, you know, growing up, uh, at a certain point, you know, I got good grades and did all that stuff, uh, and more or less met my parents' expectations with that regard. But I also uh, tried to have an active social life, um, was pretty rebellious as a teenager, and ended up in lots of fights with my mom over the years, uh, to the point where it was sort of like, you know, civil disobedience. Like, I... I probably wasn't supposed to have a girlfriend, but, you know, I went and did anyway and things like that. Um, but I did sort of always get the sense that there was a double standard with my sisters. You know, there were things that I got away with that uh, probably they would not have gotten away with. So that's, you know, part of it. The other part is that my parents got divorced um, some ways when I was growing up. Uh, you know, I was in college, entering college at the time, uh, and one of my my younger sister was still in high school. And that's what, what I say when I mean, like, yeah, and at that point, 
I think we were uh, reflecting a lot of the sort of American <laughs> family experience mm-hmm. at that point in time. Um, my mom went back to work, and so I became a latchkey kid uh, right around you know that period. But her work was owning a store um, in a mall, selling some small retail electronics, and so you know that part kind of also matched the uh, you know Korean immigrant experience of uh, entrepreneurship. Um, and I think this sort of back and forth, you know, a little bit of American, a little bit of Korean. Um, was pretty typical of how I grew up, at least with respect to my parents. As you're growing up and you're going through your studies and your normal, just the socialization of, of being a high school kid, college, uh, and beyond, at any moments, did you see yourself as a public official? No. In fact, um, you know, one of the pretty traditional aspects of my uh, growing up was that my mom and probably my dad, but he didn't, you know, speak so much, to be honest. Um, but my mom probably had a very rigid view that I uh, should go and be a doctor or a lawyer. And at some point later, I think uh, computer scientist or software programmer yeah. got added to the list as an acceptable <laughs> profession. Um, and by the time I was leaving law school, I think, uh, you know, banking has become an acceptable profession among, you know, first-generation Koreans. But as a result, um, you know, I think my parents really sort of frowned upon politics and activism and, you know, advocacy work as as sort of like a a real job. That, That wasn't a real job, I think, in their eyes. And so... You know, uh, you know, after I left college and I was a sociology and philosophy major, my mom really wanted me to go to law school, and I was pretty interested at the time in getting a Ph.D. in sociology. Um, you know, I, I wasn't totally opposed to law school, so in fact, that's what I ended up doing. But almost as soon as I entered, I had made a decision that I was going to stay on the social justice, nonprofit route, and so I started not doing a lot of the things that uh, a tiger mom would push a law student to do, such as, you know, join the law review and uh, moot court competitions, go apply for a big law firm job in your second summer. And instead, I was doing things like uh, low-income legal clinic for women or the Innocence Project, doing research on uh, people claiming they were innocent and in prison. And... And so that was, you know, again, you know, uh, I guess in hindsight, it's a little bit of me splitting the difference with, um, you know, these cultural and parental pressures. You know, I sort of would on, on paper check the box, and I'm like, okay, I got good grades, and now I'm going to go off and do some activism. All right, I went to law school, but I'm not using my degree in the way you anticipated. And that's been uh, pretty typical of, I think, my relationship with my parents with respect to my profession. Um, in fact, you know, I started doing a little bit of activist stuff, uh, you know, during that whole high school, college, oh. law school period, and uh, started working on political campaigns, and my parents were quite puzzled by what the heck it was uh, I was doing all the time, and I think they didn't really understand it, but, you know, the truth was I was really building the seeds of a lot of um, skill 
building sure. in politics, policy, and advocacy, and uh, networking with a lot of hope. Take me to that place where you're having that conversation. Uh, because I had a similar angst with with the reconciliation between uh, not necessarily pleasing the parents, but being able to educate them on why I want to do certain things uh, with my career. At the same time, trying to make sure that they they can at least look proud upon their son for what you know what they believe or what I believe is to be a great career path. Was that conversation pretty hard to have, or was it was it pretty easy and you just kind of took off and, and ran with it? It really wasn't a conversation I was ever able to have um, in reality because um, it, it, it was like we were speaking the same language, but not really. I think they couldn't culturally comprehend that um, that there was a room for success and esteem and uh, respect from your community uh, from doing all this sort of political work. Uh, and in fact, as I was winning these campaign I was campaign managers for a while so I'm like winning them for people I'm like becoming a chief of staff for uh, um, a council member this sort of thing you know most most of the way through that they didn't they saw these as peculiar hobbies that I was engaging in I think it probably wasn't until I became a chief of staff at the county council uh, in Montgomery County that suddenly they were like oh now that's a respectable position you know, but that was uh, years after <laughs> I had logging away at um, a lot of advocacy work. And so, you know, I said, you know, what I've come to see in hindsight is, um, you know, my dad used to always clip out these articles in newspapers, and the story was almost always the same. Mm. It was some young person, usually an immigrant or childhood immigrant, who had invented something, started a company, uh, you know, come up with some amazing research or something like this. And and I could see what he was trying to tell me. It was, like, go do something special, you know, shoot high. Like, you're here to make, make big things happen. And that, you know, he, and he never said anything. He just clipped these articles. <laughs> and I sort of read them. And some of them were professional success, but oftentimes it was, some guy who started a company and be, you know, made like $6 million. Um, so financial success, I think, was, was a lot of the driving um, motivation, too, for some of this pestering from my parents. Now, I say all that, and suddenly it's the case that I'm running for office, and now I'm, you know, in the Korean language newspapers in the D.C. metro area, and my parents are suddenly clipping all these articles about me, you know? And, and so finally, it, it seemed that the sort of esteem that they were looking for, the respect in the community, and the, hey, look, you've done something notable with your life, uh, was possible at that point that I had won office, and they couldn't have been the more proudest people ever. But had you told them, you know, probably a year before that, they probably would have been like, I don't know what my book is on or what all this weird stuff is that he's doing. Um, you know, so I think that's a pretty, it's a pretty amusing in hindsight, but probably, probably at the time there were some, you know, moments where I was pretty irritated by my uh, uh, parents' lack of interest in the sort of work I had taken up. And a lot of it, you know, outside of, like, whether politics was respectable 
probably had to do what, you know, they, my mom was always asking me how much money I was making. You know, and I was like, nah, nah, don't worry about that. That's, that's, that's not why I'm doing this, you know? It's, you know, part of it is like, what are you doing that I can take away and tell my friends about and brag about? Exactly. And if it, if it doesn't seem like it fits that mold, right? If I have to explain it to them, then it's not going to work. You should go find something else. Um, do something more respectable. Uh, Maryland House of Delegates, uh, you're a Democrat in, in District 20, which is uh, mostly of Montgomery County. Um, and you are, uh, you've been a member of the House of Delegates since, I guess, you were elected in 2014, officially took office in 2015. Uh, th- these are four-year terms, is that correct? Yes. Great. So, uh, I always like to know from, from public officials, especially Korean-American public officials, what was there a defining moment, uh, say, let's say in your high school or college years, uh, that you saw that said, oh, my God, I have to run for office? Or was it kind of a gradual buildup to eventually running for office? It was both. Um there was a defining moment where I said I would never run for office, and that period was followed by a gradual buildup and realization that I could and should. And it all goes back to about 1998. I was really interested in free speech and the uh, civil liberties issues and personal freedoms, and I went to go intern at the ACLU's national uh lobbying shop basically down in DC the summer after my freshman year of college and I worked in their law library uh, helping with research on things and I had an internship supervisor there and she was you know, like oh you know you're you're very thoughtful and sharp and you know have you considered running for office and I'll, I'll forget you know this was 98 I said well I'm from Montgomery County in the DC metro region, and I don't see ever see other Asian people in office or running for office, and so I don't really think that's a realistic possibility for me. And at the time, you probably also didn't see Latino uh, elected officials. That in this area, the world was still primarily split into a white-black paradigm. You know, the sort of 1960s race paradigm of U.S. politics had continued three decades later um, into the 90s in a place like Montgomery County, Maryland. And, you know, because I had been following the Hill a bit, you know, the, you see that the only Asian elected officials, at least at the federal level, were from the West Coast uh, or Hawaii. And, uh, you know, and so it seemed very clear that, okay, well, parts of California and Hawaii have large Asian populations, it's not that weird for them to have Asian elections. But out here in Maryland, yeah, I just can't see that happening. And so I had always resigned myself to being someone who would have to work behind the scenes in the political system. Uh, you know, and in fact, I'll start like managing campaigns, working in government offices, um, and uh, doing issue advocacy on the sort of outside of the political system. And it stayed that way for a long time. Um, then finally, you know, somewhere through uh, the early 2000s, I want to say, you started to see things like, oh, Montgomery County is becoming a majority-minority county. 
But it wasn't the case that we were the classic, you know, 50-50 black-white, um, you know, community. That's not what they meant. It was more like we were a, a mashup of Latino, Asian, black, uh, white, um, and a lot of foreign-born uh, residents in the county. And so we had a lot more like what we're seeing in California these days where you have these communities that are split between like three or four uh, different demographic groups. And yet, I, you know, I still had the view like, well, most of those groups aren't going to vote. Um, but then, you know, that starts to change. And I finally ran a campaign for a Venezuelan immigrant who was running for the county council. And she ran against the son of the former county executive who was, at the time, a member of the state house. And nobody thought she could win against someone like that. Mm -hmm. But she did in a low turnout special election. And uh, it has Blorcus uh, Senior's retirement home in it uh, and an Orthodox Jewish community. You know, lots of groups where you would think this Venezuelan immigrant didn't fit the profile of the voters there. But... Uh, but she actually won her race. Um, and, you know, since then, it sort of opened my eyes to there being new possibilities with the demographic shifting that's going on in a lot of places. And that demographic shifting has also come with uh, changes in, you know, who people are exposed to in terms of other cultures and who they live near, who they see around on a daily basis, and I think, um, you know, it's a much more pluralistic uh, uh, political community mm. in Montgomery County now, and when you look at who's getting elected, it's a very diverse group of folks that uh, that is rising through the political system uh, in our area, and so um, I think it, it, took, it took a few examples of that happening in the outside world before I finally realized that it was possible. Now, uh, making, you know, the idea that it would be desirable, that is an entirely different uh, thought process that I went through. Well, here, here's some organizations uh, before you were elected. You, you worked with a lot of advocacy groups like Demand Progress that protects Internet freedom, Maryland's Montgomery County, uh, Get Out the Vote Director, Fair Vote that seeks for fair representation and, and narrow the voter disenfranchisement, and many more uh, issues such as transportation, ACLU, as you mentioned, Innocence Project, Students Against the Death Penalty. Uh, these are all... Uh, Surrounded with a lot of advocacy, and you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about your your parents. Where where did this this spirit and this attitude of advocacy come from? So, you know, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, you know, my mom is a an angry letter writer. Uh, my dad is a pretty silent dude, but you know, he tends to think long term about things. Uh, you know, look at things in the broad historical context. And I think, you know, somewhere with that personality mix, um, you know, I, I have sort of a, a uh, an eye for injustice. But, you know, I actually think growing up as one of the few non-white kids in Montgomery, in my Montgomery County school, and having this sort of bizarre upbringing where I I totally get the Korean culture 
you know, as I witnessed it from my parents, but I also totally get the American culture as I was living it. Um, that always also meant it's not that you're you're fully in both worlds. It also means you're fully disconnected from both worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a lot of the sort of Korean traditions and um, thought process of my parents seem very uh, bizarre and antiquated to me. Um, and a lot of the social norms from the sort of majority white population I grew up with also seemed, you know, sometimes unfair or uh, not good either. And so I think out of that, I started to just keep an eye um, out for these sorts of things, but actually want to do something about it. Uh, so one interesting thing I say, too, is if you look at the issues I've worked on in, in my professional life and you know, through various uh, advocacy projects, it really runs a big range from women's rights to voter protection to uh, internet freedom, death penalty repeal, and a lot of that was intentional. Um, I made a pretty clear decision at some point in time that when I really thought about it, I didn't see myself being a service worker. Mm-hmm in the justice side of the equation, right? I would, you wouldn't probably find me deciding to uh, do social work or uh, work in a soup kitchen or something like that, though that's important work. Um, but that I, I had always tended more towards trying to make policy changes that would, you know, sort of impact that whole constituency um, instead of going one by one. But the problem I started, it started to occur to me is that you can't always make policy change happen on affordable housing or the environment or civil rights or whatever it is that you're interested in. That a lot of it is driven by opportunities that happen at that very moment, right? Like if there's a a bridge collapse, suddenly you can push for funding for infrastructure. But you're probably not going to get that money in a year where the bridge didn't collapse. Um, And if you realize that, then it probably helps to jump between issues if you uh, do have a broad basket. Now, where that's interesting as it relates to being a Korean-American politician is that, you know, I definitely would not say that my political identity has been driven by uh, being a Korean-American first. Uh, In fact, not at all. That's probably a bit down on the list that most people would know me as a progressive activist or a social justice activist first, and that that's, um, you know, what I think a lot of my political personality is geared to, and, you know, when you go back to what it takes to win and how you would get uh, a diverse group of folks moving through the political pipeline, you know, as I mentioned, in Montgomery County, you're not going to win an election off of a racial group. Uh, We don't really, because the political dialogue doesn't really function that way. That, you know, these days, the classic combination is liberal uh, voters mixing together with a blend of different racial groups to elect liberal candidates and Democratic primaries. Um, and we see that over and over again. And so, uh, you know, in order for, you know, folks that are coming from this, these immigrant-based populations to really, you know, break out of the parents' uh, non interest in a lot of this stuff, frankly, um, is to get involved and get your hands dirty on these issues. Mm-hmm. So that by the time you're actually looking to run, um, you have become a part of this 
ongoing American dialogue about these things like crime and punishment and transportation and women's rights. Um, and you can bring your identity to that conversation, uh, but the conver- but recognize the conversation has been going on before you got there, before your parents got there, and it will continue after you're there. Uh, and so, you know, what we're really doing is just adding our, our bizarre two-world experience into that mix. When your name comes across those newspapers, those Korean language newspapers, they're asking you, hey, can you do some more stuff? You're the Korean American now. You can represent us. But technically, they aren't your constituents in Montgomery County. They can be in Baltimore. They can be in Annapolis, right? Oh, yeah. We get a lot of calls from <laughs> Virginia Association. No you know, events and things like that. <laughs> well, I, that leads me to my next question is, it doesn't have to be Korean American, but there are some names that I'm sure – uh, when I ask you, hey, who are your role models or your mentors, these folks made a great impression upon me as a public servant or a political official. Uh, are there any Korean Americans that you keep an eye out for to say, hey, you have a bright future ahead. Let's keep an eye on this person out in you know, Texas or wherever it is. Uh, I, like, I like to throw that to you. Who are your mentors and who should we look out for? So I, I, if I'm perfectly honest about this question, I actually think, at least growing up, there was more. It, it was. It wasn't even Korean. It was like any Asian, any Asian who was out there doing something cool. Um, you know, really, because it, you know, it's like my cultural coming of age. We had like Mr. Miyagi, yeah. uh, Sulu. You know, it was just sort of like hilariously caricatured uh, portrayals of. Asians, you know, and I remember uh, watching Breakfast of Breakfast at Tiffany's with my uh, dead girlfriend, now wife. It was like one of her favorite movies. But there's this like super racist scene in it where they have some white guy putting on Asian face and and running around like an like an idiot um, in that movie. And so, you know, politically, again, growing up, it's like you you see like. Uh, Mike Honda or yeah. Senator Akaka or something like that, you know, and I'm like, that's cool. There, there are a couple Asian politicians out there making it happen. Um, it's not totally hopeless. And that was probably as much as I had in terms of looking out there and seeing people who, um, who would show that, like, we could do something. Beyond that, when you move into the current era, and I double back and I and I see this stuff like the Tiger Mom. You know, the most interesting things to me now are cultural players mm. who um, are putting out there things that are not related to business, uh, academic, or other sort of like respectable types of success. Which is, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, but you know, we see, you know, like Harold and Kumar to me was a very interesting. Uh, cultural phenomenon because you had these two Asian guys uh, running around like idiots in that in a wildly successful movie, which in probably any other era that would not be two Asian guys being cast right. in that role. And you know, so things like that are are very interesting to me because they they sort of allow uh, this sort of bridge between generations. And the reason why I think it's important. You know, I would swear, and I, I know this only anecdotally, but, um, you know, you have sort of an overrepresentation of Asian Americans in college 
applicant pools for top universities, for example. Of course. And I begin to come to the uh, belief that, you know, the sort of Tiger Mom philosophy is important to get you over a, a threshold of academic success, but that really, you these days, you're probably going to want to distinguish yourself culturally in some ways. Um, you know, round out your, your character and personality through other activities. And that's why, you know, uh, that's why I only half-jokingly say, like, I herald, I herald in Kumar. And I actually think, um, I think John Cho is Korean. Uh, yes, yeah. But anyway, I think, you know, I think those things are, are just as important markers to keep an eye on um, for, you know, the community at large as it moves through uh, history in the United States. You kind of touched upon this earlier, but if you were to give advice to a younger generation now, I know you, you've probably helped out a lot of uh, when, you're in, when you're in your positions and you get to uh, uh, make an impression upon the younger generation, a lot of interns coming through. What do you want to say to them, to the younger generation? I think we're at a point where we can have a bit more of an optimistic, can-do attitude about things. I kind of feel like our community... Uh, traditionally has and continues to uh, maybe intentionally in some ways but lurk in the background Mm -hmm. of the sort of political dialogue that's going on and you know one of the big battles that I've entangled myself in is this whole issue of refugees Uh, and you know all these Republican governors are trying to reject refugees right now Yes. and you know if you're from an immigrant based community especially one that had any sort of war exit, war-based exodus or something like that, um, you ought to be a lot more sympathetic on this and understand, you know, where your your people's history, at least in the last 30 years mm-hmm. or so, mm-hmm. um, on this. And, you know, I only heard really bits and pieces of it from my parents, like, way late in life, you know, but it was a sort of alarming tone um, through which they speak about that stuff. Uh, so... I think that kind of, um, you know, grounding, it's, uh, it's what people need to uh, keep through. But the, if I were to pass on a word to the next generation about how to actually do that, you know, I was at a panel the other day with a few uh, sort of, uh, it wasn't all like officials. You might, I think there was like some business leaders and some, uh, high-ranking government agency officials there, but it was all uh, Korean Americans. And what struck me uh, was that a lot of the folks were talking about resisting their parents' impulses as a key barrier to overcome in in trying to negotiate in this new world um, that we're you know that we're a part of shaping. And I and this is why I sort of laughed because. It, it really brought home to me that there's a lot more of a shared experience we have here uh, among this like next generation of folks than I had ever imagined existed. Even to the point that you know, without transferring with these other um, successful Korean Americans about their experiences, they show up and they start telling the, the young people to to take a grain, take with a grain of salt their parents' uh, desires. For their lives, and and I, you know, I had to second that sentiment, and I think that's it's not an insignificant thing, you know, if you understand how much 
uh, family pressure there can be um, for the next generation coming up. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's that's really it. It's like, how do we stay true to uh, the experiences of our parents' generation and not totally, you know, disrespect uh, some of the values and cultures they were trying to instill, uh, but also recognize that we've got to evolve um, our, into, into a role yeah. in the dialogue that's going on in this country, which which I think the first generation probably had less uh, focus on. Um, you, you mentioned this earlier that you, you started out uh, with your advocacy work and working on campaigns in high school and college. What do a lot of the younger generations not know about the campaign trail? You've gone through several campaigns, and then you actually put your name on the line here for one. What is the campaign trail like? Where I know that it's, it can be a grind. There's some funny moments, some you know lighthearted moments, but there's also some serious moments. Um, can you share maybe one one story about what to expect for those that are in college now or, or grad school is saying, hey, I, I might want to jump on a campaign? Well, the main thing I say is that in my experience in the campaign world, there aren't really rules. There are, there are a lot of history lessons that are, that are good to know, and it's good to know some basic political math and how that all operates, mm-hmm. but that for the most part, any political campaign is a complex problem-solving challenge with a lot of variables and a lot of uh, options that you have for how to spend money or where to deploy resources or what message to use. And there are all these professionals out there, these consultants, these operatives who operate by rule books instead of problem-solving logic. And they're just implementing plays for the 1998 race, no matter what the hell is going on in the year 2014. And that's all to say that uh, folks who are interested in politics and campaigns, you know, I've seen this happen where they come in completely new, don't know anything, don't know anyone uh, in the system, but they do some volunteer work, they start uh, learning how these things work, and they're able to start applying their own logic and experiences to this problem solving and be very successful. There was one particular gentleman who met um, a county council candidate at a speaking engagement that a council member did for uh, immigrant children. And he then started volunteering for the campaign. He was a very shy guy, uh, but then kept kept at it. And, I, you know, now he's just soaring high, you know, knows a lot of things uh, about how campaigns are run and really came out of nowhere. And you know, he had this self-starting energy to actually get up and do that, but it is 100% the case that the pipeline for candidates and political operatives and all that is uh, these campaigns, you know, for the, the most part. You know, that's how you start to get a lot of new people into the political network. And a lot of those jobs and internships right now are going to go to the communities. Uh, children that have been here already um, just because there's some know-how about the political system and who to call and how to get someone an internship on the Hill or on a campaign that I think, you know, not only are the free American parents probably not even thinking about this, um, even if they had it as a goal, I would bet they wouldn't know where to begin 
Uh, and there's got to be some trickle down, you know, to the kids themselves about how that impacts their interests or lack of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said from the beginning of this, the the political system, in many ways, though there are gatekeepers and things like that, uh, it can be a lot more of a meritocracy. Um, you know, there's no degree you really need to start working in campaigns or being in the political system, but you can easily. Uh, you know, figure out how to get into it, and if you're successful, you know, I'd say, you know, seven times out of ten, that's going to be recognized, and people are going to try and pick you up for um, interesting projects. Interesting. Uh, last question, Delegate uh, David Moon from Maryland. Um, any major projects, legislation, or initiatives that we should be aware of in the coming uh, weeks and months? I've been working on a lot. Um, you know, my my docket over the summer has included everything from investigating uh, why Montgomery County has such a high rate of uh, rapes that are being labeled as unfounded. I'm trying to stop um, the metro system from cutting back its hours. Um, I have a constitutional amendment that I got on the ballot this year. So there's a, a ballot question facing the voters in November uh, that would seek to grant special elections for vacancies for offices in Maryland. To keep it consistent um, so with there's parties. A lot, there's mm-hmm. a lot going on. Some um, big themes, though. The, you know, last year, last couple of years, I've been heavily focused on the criminal justice system and trying to get nonviolent offenders out of our prison system to the maximum extent possible. And this year, uh, I'm beginning to start weaving in a lot of work on making sure we're not criminalizing poverty mm. and we are not creating a cycle of poverty with residents through the way we set fines and fees and other penalties for different behaviors. Um, and I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, right now, well, actually, we fixed it this year, but as of last year, if you didn't pay a ticket, that ticket would double, and if you still couldn't pay, actually, you were going to have your driver's license suspended. And if you needed to drive to go to work to be able to pay that ticket, uh, you would be out of luck. Mm. And if you drove to work anyway, that uh, was a jailable offense in Maryland. And we have a lot of weird things like that on the books um, that I'm trying to undo and put in with a little bit more of a sympathetic uh, response. Yeah. So that's the big project, I think, for the next year. 